Thank you for coming, everyone. Uh, we're about to begin. Uh, my name's Jesse. I'm the Deputy Creative Director of M Pavilion. And I'll just begin with acknowledging that we're on the land of the traditional owners, the Bunrang people, and that we'd like to pay our respects to any Indigenous people here and um, pay our respects from past, present, and to the future. Um, we'd like to thank uh, Sunrise for bringing us this talk today and for bringing Patrick Schumacher over. Um, it's UEM Sunrise that have made this possible and Zaha Hadid Architects that are working on projects here for them. Um, I won't uh, keep speaking very long. I'll hand over to Jill Garner, who is the Victorian State Government Architect and has generously um, given us her time today to be our moderator. Thank you. Thanks, Jessie. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this afternoon's M Talk. Um, as uh, Jessie said, my name's Jill Garner and I've been given the privilege to um, have this conversation with Patrick Schumacher from Zaha Hadid Architects. Um, Patrick, I'd like to welcome you to Melbourne and to the M Pavilion. Um, we tend to capture a very diverse audience and I think we've got that exactly that today, a real diversity of, um, of our community, architects and otherwise, in the M Pavilion. And uh, I thought for those who are less familiar with the world of architecture, I thought I would just provide a very brief introduction to the office of Zaha Hadid and a short bio also to introduce Patrick as well in his role as practice leader since Zaha's passing. So, to, look, to introduce the practice of Zaha Hadid Architects, I thought I would do it through sharing a moment within my own architectural history because sometimes there are points of awareness where a palpable change in our industry can be felt to be taking place. So if we step right back to 1983, I was a student member of Melbourne's Denton Corker Marshall team, you don't know this, who, um, who were, and I'm sure we were all very disappointed, to be runners-up in the international competition for a private health club located in the hills over Kowloon in Hong Kong. Of course, that competition was the peak. And the history and impact of the winning entry for that competition could probably be called the stuff of architectural legend. Zaha Hadid's winning vision was captured in a number of remarkable paintings. They showed a site transformed by excavation, reimagined topography, and extraordinary cantilevered beams and shard-like fragments. And I have a really strong memory of our team here in Melbourne poring over the publication of those paintings wondering how on earth anything so structurally and architecturally radical could ever be built, and in fact even more fundamentally how anything so structurally and architecturally radical could actually have ever even been conceived. And there was a really clear sense, and I'm really speaking from a place here in Melbourne, there was a, a sense that maybe architecture might never be quite the same again. So although they never did get to build the peak, Zaha Hadid architects have gone on to redefine the possibilities that are inherent in architecture and in structure. Believe it or not, when I looked at that date, I realised it's 34 years since we were all stunned by the peak. 
and Zaha Hadid Architects have designed and built an extensive repertoire of significant projects across the globe since that time. Now, Patrick studied both architecture and philosophy in Germany and in Britain, and he joined the office of Zaha Hadid in 1988. He was given the role of project architect of the practice's first built project, the Vitra Fire Station in Germany. Um, a, a first work that's often a long time coming, which was completed, I think, in 1993. Working closely with Zaha until her unfortunate passing last year, Patrick has co-authored most of the practice's built work to date. Patrick has also taught architecture through Britain, Europe and across many places in the USA. In 1996, he founded the Design Research Laboratory at the Architectural Association in London, where he continues to teach. Patrick, the idea that the buildings designed by Zaha Hadid Architects evolve from their context is something that was inherent even in the concept for the peak. The buildings weave form, space and structure into connected and integrated places that invite exploration. They're mathematical, and over time they've become fluidly geometric. You have been quoted as suggesting that Zaha was an intuitive genius and perhaps not entirely aware of the power of her own vision. You've been also at the forefront of digital compu computational design in our industry, and I understand that you coined the phrase parameticism as a style of architecture for the 21st century. I assume that part of your work, over the very long time that you have been part of Zaha Hadid Architects, you've, you've been there to make the impossible possible in some ways. So, here's my, here's my question after that very long introduction. Going back to the earlier comment I made about how on earth anything so structurally and architecturally radical could either be conceived or built, could you talk about your methodology and your, and your process to conceive and then your process that actually allows you to realise your projects? I know that's a huge question. <laughs> well, first of all, welcome everybody. Uh, it's my first time in Australia. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks to the M Pavilion, thanks to UAM Sunrise and thanks to Jill for making time and giving me that platform. So... Um, well, I can talk about the process. I first want to mention perhaps that I was a student the same time you were a student. Actually, I started in 83 as well. And I was hit a year later with the publication of The Peak, and it did change for me the perception of the discipline. So um, architecture turned out to be much more exciting, explored a field of design potential than it seemed at the Stuttgart University where I was more technically oriented. Uh, we looked at classical modernism. There's really an explosion of, of enthusiasm, which, which I felt, and I moved to London very quickly after that. Became a student there and then joined Zaha. Now, the point you made also in your introduction, I think, was important to realize what's so new and other about this architecture is that it is not finite, rigid, preconceived forms like the crystals which architecture always had established through symmetry and proportion <clears throat> or through, um, let's say, repeating elements like in modernism, but allowing the architecture to be embedded in context and be adaptively self-configuring 
into context. And the peak is an example where the topography and, and rock formations become influential in how the building kind of sits into it. I mean, there are precursors of this to a little bit, like maybe um, Frank Lloyd Wright's Falling Water, where you work directly into a landscape condition. But it is a new venture and became an a priori of our work. And I want to mention this because that's also underlying the principles of what I call now parametricism, basically that all the elements of architecture become parametrically variable and adaptive. First of all, to embed, allow the architecture to embed itself into complex conditions of the urban environment where sites might be irregular and adjacent buildings are diverse to adjust to that, <clears throat> but also to adjust to in complex internal organizations and to allow these complexities to be expressed. So you can't come with a preconceived figure which you place and then you fill in various rooms, but you have to allow an inside-out development, but then also an embedding development, and that for that, the, 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 the components and elements need to be very uh, flexible and open. So parametrism starts with, with a new ontology or a whole new series of items which are inherently malleable and plastic, and then they start to settle in, ad nestle and adjust to each other and to a context. That's very potent and powerful. And this way you can also forge when you building upon building is built up, they're not just kind of randomly assemble and agglomerate, but they resonate with each other and affiliate to each other and build up a complex urban texture, hopefully. I mean, that's something you can't see yet. What you can see is individual incisions of new into old. And that's the way we work. The design process starts with an analysis of the context and the brief and to evolve... Um, and not coming with a preconceived notion, but to evolve an, a form, a morphology, a geometry out of these contextual givens and then also the internal givens. And uh, computation comes in uh, relatively late in the history of developing this where we had already known that we wanted to have a very, very open and adjustable architecture. And we had all sorts of means of use. Also the discovery that curvature helps a lot if things get complex. Because before you have the different directions layered in. And different angles coming in. Different parts kind of agglomerating in a collage sense. You very quickly lose a sense of coherence, identity and legibility in the artifact. So deconstructivist, that's what it was called. Yeah. Original stage. Uh, uh, compositions. Uh, lose legibility quite quickly and you can maintain, I think, uh, legibility and coherence and sense of order by having curves and having certain processes which the computer delivers, like associative logics where you script geometries, make them dependent, so dependency relationships to context, and you get something which is nature-like in a way in nature is also that an organism... Uh, it has its internal logic and genetic code, but then it kind of expresses its phenotype in contextual relationships and is always embedded, adapted, always varied, always unique with its place to, place to purpose. We are slogans for architecture. And the precise methodology, how we, 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 we then use uh, algorithms, scripts, and optimization tools is maybe uh, too much to digest for this audience, but 
the essence is very clear. It's a kind of morphogenesis of form finding rather than a position of a preconceived form, which makes this way of working so versatile, I think empowering, uh, but also interestingly stimulating and surprising because you don't know at the beginning of the process what you will confront yourself and others with, with in terms of the solutions which come out of a process. Um, and I think that's, that's exciting and stimulating. And uh, it also looks unusual. And I think that's another point I want to make before I hand back to you. Um, the, there's a misconception that we are out to make unusual-looking things to generate a spectacle and draw attention to ourselves and to the building. That's not uh, our intention, but that's something which, out of a rigorous and new process, will then appear unusual, is an outcome uh, we're living with, and uh, not necessarily something which, this kind of idea of an iconic landmark is not something which we're aiming at, uh, but it's something which is nearly inevitable a result of such a process. I think that's a really interesting distinction. Um, and, and as you say, one that perhaps maybe is not read into your buildings all the time. Uh, I think, um, I mean, I, one of the things I think is potentially very interesting about the power of parametrics is that idea that you conceive an understanding of a whole lot of things at once. And so you're solving a whole lot of problems at once and it's, um, it's giving you a a very holistic picture of every part of the building, the program, what it's made from, all of those sorts of things. Could you touch on the, the, perhaps the interweaving of those contemporary issues, which include things like building information, monitoring, uh, modelling, um, virtual reality, 3D printing, robotics, artificial intelligence, all of those, those kind of um, th things that are happening at the moment that we're all really involved with. Can the ability to understand the relationships within parametrics, can it lead to something that's ecologically and environmentally sound? Um, yeah, I think that's very important. We, by the way, the, the various issues and concerns and criteria and the list is kind of con building up as we demand more of our buildings yeah. and society demands more, is not something, of course, we can solve in one go. This is why design process takes months, <laughs> many months sometimes. So you layer in issue by issue, one at a time, and thinks the thing is plastic and malleable, it can have a series of these over-determinations accumulating. Of course, you have to, when you bring a new criteria on board, you have to make sure that the others are not yeah, over, <laughs> overthrown. Yeah. So it's, it becomes the more, in the, in the, the, the further on in the design process, the more harder it is to to absorb new issues. So, of course, the, the primary issue is before we come to environmental is embedding the building in its relationships to adjacent buildings. I think usually in inner cities, that's where we're working, we often absorb existing structures. You do extensions. A, a client chose, chooses a particular location precisely because he wants to tie in and have synergetic relationships with surrounding open spaces and buildings. So we have this idea of a multiply affiliating, of gesturing to hug a certain building, to align with a certain entrance, 
to frame a certain plaza in front. So we articulate these relationships. That's the first set of parameters, contextual parameters embedding. The next thing is, of course, the internal layout, the processes, the social. For me, architecture is all about ordering social processes. That's primary then to, to, to embed these social processes in the texture of the city life. Then you start building, making a, uh, physical those diagrams. Then you come into issues of structure, into an issue of, of building physics and so on, and we use algorithms there. Environmental issues come into play, of course, uh, and we have some projects more than others where the morphology is driven by environmental issues. Now, for instance, this is oftentimes sun exposure, maybe the ability to ventilate, but a lot of times it is shading and receiving light, as well as uh, in, heavy, uh, in certain areas also uh, water management. And the way we work on this, we, we look for uh, ways of not shielding all these environmental criteria in, in, in an, uh, away from the building, as it were, by, and, and then using machines mm. to, 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 to re-establish an, 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 an internal environment. But to, we love passive systems, and we love the way um, vernacular architecture and historical architectures, and we look at them and study them, manage to have comfortable climates and sustainable uh, uh, energy metabolisms without a lot of these machines. So we, we, and we like the way these uh, concerns give identity to a building, to adapt the building and make it, give it characterful uh, relations to the, to the local climates, the microclimate as well. So for us, these are opportunities to give identity and expression to a building, to a place. And uh, so the same is with structural logics. So we have environmental logics, structural logics, and you mentioned robotics and new fabrication tools. Fabrication logics would imprint their physiognomy onto the building. And each, each material you use, each also way of processing material, whether you work in concrete casting or you work in steel bending, which is sheet material, or you work with, with linear element you, you build up, lives of a strong imprint on the building, the physiognomy. So I'm, as architects, we work closely with engineers and all the technical performance, performances we want to bring into the building. I think I see our task of heightening this into a language, into an expressive venture to give character and identity to our buildings by making use of all these structures. And I think architecture has always done this, where it uses... Uh, uh, the stone layouts, the way it creates arches, the way it creates roof overhangs, all technical elements become style elements, become elements in a language. That's the way I look at this. And I look at this in the same way when I look at new materials and new fabrication technologies. We need to bring them in because they're efficient and we need these new technologies to make the more adaptive geometries viable. But I'm fascinated by the fact that um, each new technology imprints its physiognomy onto the building and gives a new character to the building. As architect, that's what excites me about it. Mm. Um, the, it, it occurs to me too, you know, you talked about the, the sort of systems of occupation of the building, which is the, the, the program of the building and the context and how it knits into its place as well. Um, the, the, one of the things that I think is, um, is an outcome of that is 
incredibly intuitive wayfinding, which I think is is something that, once again, is kind of surprising in, in something that feels so iconic, you know, we used that word before, but in fact within, within it, because the system of occupation has been so integrally tied with building form, structure, space, material, um, the sense of actually moving through the buildings is actually incredibly natural as well and, and echoes that t- topographical kind of idea. Well, thanks for appreciating the building in this way because it's very important. That's one of the key things, um, particularly when the, when the organisation becomes complex. If you look at a building like the Dongdaemon Centre in Seoul, very complex, irregular site, multiple levels we have to address, many entrances from all sides, five different museums, public spaces, exhibition spaces, etc. So it becomes quite complex quite quickly. So it's important to wrap this and uh, articulate the various entrances so that they become conspicuous. And as you said, that that the navigation is eased. And for that it's also important, the techniques of parametricism, for instance, that it is a decluttering of the space. So we're trying, when we're doing a staircase, we, we just let the surface which comes around from the roof maybe just ripple and step and still gesture an overall sp- uh, uh, spatial move while lighting and staircases, handrails and other elements are brought under formalism which helps that gesture. So they're not just pragmatic things which clutter up the scene but they kind of become a palette of painting the scene. And I think that's a very important task for architects, this kind of orchestration, that what I call the compositional stance. So the, there's the engineering stance, the technical stance, which needs, me, means that uh, certain technical requirements, openings, doors, uh, staircases, handrails, structural elements like ribs uh, to hold up a roof, uh, lighting features to give light and I take all of these and make them part of a a palette to paint a scene which is legible. So each of these elements has a technical function but at the same time they also have a compositional function in displaying and revealing the essential relationships and orienting users to find each other and find their way (coughs) in a complex situation. It's, it's critical, and I'm, I'm glad you, you, you perceive our buildings like this. They, they seem kind of quite elegant and uncluttered. Mm. Um, you're suffering from our, um, our plane trees here. <laughs> we get used to it. <laughs> um, I'm just changing the conversation slightly into, into one of, um, of succession, which is a, 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 an, quite an interesting one um, that we... You know, we're going. You know, we we watch our architects go through processes of change and and morphing into something slightly different. Um, I've I've read a lot of praise for Zaha in the past for training a significant number of designers with, within her practice, and um, I, I think actually this could probably be considered quite unusual in a in a world where um, or an industry perhaps that's often renowned for those who. Um, who perhaps are, are quite high profile and quite protective of their profile, etc. Um, what is her legacy, and and how does that keep going? 
<coughs> well, she, she's been a teacher all her life. Uh, she, when she finished at the AE, she started teaching right away with, with her teachers, Rem and Elia. She went to the partnership, and so she's been teaching at the AE, and then we've <coughs> I joined the firm. Um, I also started teaching right after my, I finished as well. And I was still a student, actually, when I, was, when I started work. And we taught a number of studios around the world, <coughs> uh, in, in America and elsewhere. And we developed work with students. So this is not so much a training, but inviting students into an exploration, into a design research project, always working in teams and groups. Uh, very, very generous and, and very easygoing and uh, was always like a studio atmosphere. With, and so we brought these students back and we continued the work doing competitions. And then <coughs> we formalized this also in the way that... Um, she became a professor in Vienna for 15 years. We did this, and a lot of our staff is out of this studio. I was teaching for now over 20 years at the AA, and a lot of our people are these ex-students. And I think the, the teaching is very, very important uh, to develop the work and to continue to develop work is even very important for me now, for us now that we have, first of all, we have a separate research team, but also still using the teaching arenas to always develop a new agenda, the next stage of the work, because often find, you would otherwise find what you see often, that an architect develops an, a certain approach early on in the first five, ten years of their career, and then they kind of get in the phase of rolling out another 20, 30 years, and often there's a little development. That becomes problematic if the world develops... <laughs> Uh, uh, faster than that, so we need to continuously innovate and develop, and for that we need to uh, have a continuous design research strand, and I think that's what I call that teaching and working with younger architects rather than training, and training, I mean, we never uh, do kind of formal training approach, uh, <clears throat> although there is, uh, at the beginning, when people join my studio at the AA, there is software tutoring and their seminars and so on, but the real thing is developing new original work with, with young architects and students. Mm. Keeps it fresh. Keeps it, keeps it fresh, keeps, yeah. it, keeps it going, and, uh, but also for students it's interesting for, to be involved in research work which, which has, is part of it, uh, in this case practice, which will make it happen mm. down the road. And uh, I think I have this confidence that the, the current research, for instance, which is architectural semiology and life process modeling, so agent-based simulations of life processes in buildings, will something which we will, in a few years, be rolling out and will, in, will inform our work much more mm -hmm. than uh, hitherto. Interesting. Um, outside of architecture, the, uh, the other thing that um, Zaha Hadid Architects has been involved with is, is that sort of broader issue of design and, and involvement in design in, um, oh, you know, flatware, furniture, um, jewellery, those sorts of things. Will that, will that continue? It, it would. And we actually, um, uh, we're also fashion designers. I did design some suits. Zaha designed a lot of her outfits. Oh, yeah, I saw your tuxedo, yeah. <laughs> parametric, parametric tuxedo. <laughs> well, for me, <coughs> for me, it's it's one universe. It's all design is communication design. I believe 
design is, as I said, structuring social interaction. We express ourselves through our sense of dress, through our places. We bring people to it, our homes, the way we kind of choose them, decorate them up. The firms in which the way we structure our interactions and we, are, we display ourselves. I think it's all one universe. And if you look at the Bauhaus, you have all the disciplines, design disciplines there, all the way from urbanism to, to cutlery. And we do that as well. So we, we love that. It's also something we get tangible quickly. You can Certain new morphologies can be tried out. Certain ways of produ production can be tried out on furniture scale easier than on architecture scale. But in the end, furniture is incredibly important to create a scene. So we love to deliver buildings as total Gesamtkunstwerk, if you like, uh, a total experience, a total coherent um, uh, environment all the way to to the interior surfaces and furnishings. And okay, uh, we, and uh, it's only occasionally for an airport uh, retail concept we, we designed the, the setting together with the, with the, the costumes as well. <laughs> <laughs> Very diverse. Um, how are we going for time? <clears throat> so, yes. Yeah, so Q&A time. Yes, yeah, we, um, we might head for some Q&A. Okay, so we've got a roving microphone and um, we will just sprint from person to person. Great. Okay, hello. Welcome to Melbourne. And I was recently in Baku in Azerbaijan and it's the most fantastic introduction to the city when you drive out of the airport and you see this amazing, magnificent structure of Zaha's smack in the middle, raised on a platform. And two things, could you tell us a bit about it, how it came about? And the other one, I'm not an architect, how do you, I suppose, how do you make those amazing <laughs> curves? How do you do that? And loops, <laughs> yes, but in layman's language. Well, well, thank you, first of all, to, that you appreciate this building. I mean, it's one of those buildings where I would say you create a kind of strange figure you know it's unusual, but it also it's recognizable. It creates a silhouette, but different silhouette from different sides, because it it is uh, so it has complexity. There's three different institutions in there. There's a national museum, there's a national library, and there's a concert hall and conference center in there. So the first thing what we did is we have to understand it that that instead of making these three buildings, we put them in one, but we try to give expression to them. Each of them has some kind of one hum or one peak, but they connect in a central lobby space. And then there's a lot of openness of vistas, the complexity of vistas if you step in, which we also like. So there's this idea of having many, several offerings, offerings, many offerings, and then having intervisibility, deep vistas from one to the other, without getting lost in a kind of labyrinth. So here's this idea of, again, of a complex offering, complex spaces, but an ease and elegance of, of navigation through it. And then you also, it's interesting, it's very, very different silhouette from each side. They also, each side sponsors open spaces, entrances, so it's a multi-phase thing, but you always know that it's, you're in this building, around this building, you can't confuse this building with another building. And this would also work, I think, if it was embedded in a, comp in a dense um, complex. So just to give a few hints, 
picking up what we were discussing, what motivates this particular design. It's also this design where, as I said earlier, where, for instance, the staircase is just the kind of uh, stepping over, over wall surface. And uh, so ramps, staircases, ceilings, all are continuous to, to give you, a, to not uh, confuse the essential spatial moves because these are spaces which have unusual shapes. They're kind of potentially amorphous and therefore you could get lost because you don't have a normal rectangle or rotunda or symmetry to orient along. So you need to orient along a kind of flow line. That's the way this is conceived. Now, how we built this, I mean, this is, this is a, a big space frame uh, underneath, uh, which has long span, and we also use the curvature as kind of shell action, so it's quite efficient. And then we have... Um, fiber concrete panels, we worked a lot on the computer to, we have individually molded panels which cover this up. And the molds were quite fascinating. They were reprogrammable molds. So you could adjust the mold and cast panel after panel in all small variations. Every element is unique, but we found ways and mechanism to have a kind of quasi-industrial process or a new kind of industrial process. The same with the Dongdamon. We had literally reprogrammable molds to make uh, this kind of mass customization model viable. Otherwise, these things would be um, crazy expensive. I mean, they are a bit more expensive than a normal building, <coughs> but, but there's been so much intelligent investment, first of all, in making such drawings, because every drawing, every item is different. We have fully automized this process through parametric modeling. And then you can also make adjustments of the form, and then all the sections are automatically redrawn or re-elaborated. And the similar power of computation will help helps us with executing these projects when we can uh, use also the intelligence of logistics to, to manage thousands and thousands of parts, which are unique parts. Um, yeah, so it's this is fiber concrete, fiber concrete, and the higher and the lower parts and the higher parts, it's more like a cementitious fiberglass, so they become lighter. They're very, very large panels. Yeah. Thank you. Oh. Okay. oh. <laughs> No, well, no, I don't think that's true. There was nothing on this side. I mean, when we came to it, when we came to it. Uh, but since this is now, as, it, as they're upgrading this whole part, uh, they also, I think, in the surroundings, there's also now a, a kind of upgrading process. Uh, it's, it's part of a, uh, you could call it a gentrification process. Once you've put such a major national asset in a place, immediately adjacent... It also makes sense to upgrade uh, those environments. So this is not something we we been involved with. So we actually, in this case, we worked directly with the with the with the president in fact, on the project. It's very interesting uh, connections where we brought into the project through through uh, through business family there who loved our work, who discovered our work, and um, yeah. Great. Okay, we've got another question here where the microphone is. Thank you. Thank you. That was really wonderful. So um, 
I'm not sure if you're aware, but in Melbourne at the moment, there's a lot of uh, a shift occurring. We've got a really um, large growing population and it's really been the architects or the architectural community that have recently stepped up and started to talk about, um, I guess, humanising architecture in a sense and bringing it back to the people, um, especially from a residential perspective. I'm just wondering if you could provide some commentary on how you view architecture in terms of a form of social activism or in terms of... I guess, making it more accessible for more people. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's important. We have, uh, I mean, we're living in this, in this era of urban concentration. I mean, the 20th century was about suburbanization, spreading out, separating all the functions, retail and factories, dormitory cities, suburbs, because life was different. It was very kind of stable, nine to five routines. Everybody was sorted in their various, slotted into the various positions in the division of labor, which was producing a small set of universal products. Uh, simple, you know, washing machines, TV sets, cornflakes, <laughs> the, the industrial age. And this was harmonizing with um, this kind of spread out suburban um, uh, lifestyle and now we're looking at something where we have precisely because we have now mass customization we have reprogrammable robotic factories we can reprogram and make tailor products much more we can um, we come together in cities for research development finance marketing um, creative industries, much more uh, uh, in, in, in we're working on, not so much on the physical production, we're working on these research development, on communication. So we're coming together, and you see that everywhere. You see that in London, you see that in Melbourne. Melbourne is growing at, I think, nearly 2% per annum in terms of population through immigration to... And London is very similar, 1.5%. Puts a huge pressure. Also, I think, on the city centre where a lot of people more and more want to actually live and work close together because it's no longer that they're only working nine to five, but that they network 24-7. I mean, that's the way a firm like us needs to live and work, where we have a breakfast network, bre networking breakfast in the morning. We, have <clears throat> we go to lectures after work. We go to uh, business dinners, to exhibitions, to conferences. We need to be in the center. And that puts an enormous pressure. Everybody wants to come and, and, and be close to work in the center. And uh, so precisely that's what architecture is all about, to, to, to structure these kind of evolving social processes and to make sure that everybody who has to be and wants to be part of this finds a way to be part of this. So, and I think, what I'm, uh, I think an architecture can do a lot about this uh, urbanistically, but also on the side of products, new kind of mixed-use uh, and, and living models and residential models. And, and I think what, what gets in the way a lot of times is that we have urban zoning regulations and we have, uh, in England, I don't know here, uh, we have um, uh, a very, very slow planning process and we have a lot of, I would say, tables of strict standards about what kind of units with what kind of sizes and what kind of equipment and room sizes 
make for a decent uh, flat, also rights of light, which prevents, in a way, this kind of in intensification, urban densification of coming together. So I've been promoting a lot kind of more freedoms for architects and developers to re rethink how one could make an inner city life working, where maybe you can have much smaller units, which could bring in a whole new set of income groups into the center. Maybe they don't need these relatively large units because they're out and about and they do their uh, studying and, or, or socializing at Starbucks. So they, this is much more... Uh, um, um, uh, and, and they only come home to sleep, maybe, and 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 uh, they don't they watch their TV on their phone. So there's different requirements, and I think we need to have entrepreneurial freedom, and also as designers we need to have the freedom to deliver to that. That's my attitude. So I want the, I I believe that we need to uh, unleash kind of uh, entrepreneurial and architectural creativity to cater for all of these groups. I'm, I'm all for a totally inclusive. I think you're, yeah, uh, you're approach. talking about yeah. Yeah. sort of design innovation, really, aren't you? Design and innovation, which, which, which is very important. And I see examples sometimes in London. There's this kind of, for instance, co-living, shared living. Uh, we work with this character who's a 27-year-old developer who has found a loophole in the London um, uh, regulatory system uh, where he does a multi-occupancy uh, 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 house uh, where he's saying that he has a house where with, with 500 bedrooms. <laughs> <laughs> gathering around a bunch of living rooms to, to be able to offer that product, which would otherwise be impossible to offer, but it's, it's, it's doing very, very well and, 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 and it's a curated co-living with, uh, with a lot of facilities, with a lot of... So these kind of models, I think, I, I would love to see, which could bring in... Uh, which would be more inclusive, inclusive than now. And possibly... Do adding diversity really is the issue too. That, that we're, thing, yeah. we're not just sort of sitting I, with one product that we all like. Well, that's and the I, problem. I the problem is now. It seems to me that there is a sense that that there's only one way people uh, uh, on the, can conceive to be kind of a normal living standard. I think it's catering for some kind of mean or median voter who 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 all political forces need to vie for <laughs> to, 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 to hit that center, that center point, and that's not good for diversity, mm. uh, where we have a distribution of lifestyles and outlooks and patterns. Yes, there is still, in the bell curve, there's a central core, which, but we, we, should, we should also uh, cater for the long tails, and for that we need to uh, loosen those kind of standards. Okay. Any other questions? Yep. Oh, where's our mic? With your exceptional background and, um, and hindsight, what's one piece of advice that you'd give to young architects today? <laughs> well... I mean, I'm looking a lot what's going on in architecture schools around the world, and and so I would give the advice. What I find curious in the last few years that the the investment in um, computational skills should be taken for granted as a natural isn't sufficiently happening, 
The other thing which I, uh, of course, always encourage is reflecting a disciplined read, read the history of architecture, particularly the history of the 20th century and 21st century, and try to understand what's going on relating architecture to, uh, to the societal processes. And uh, I know that in the field itself, there's uh, a lot of people are drawn to it. We have more of an artistic, intuitive approach, and it doesn't come natural. But I think it's very important for, for the discipline to have a kind of consciously reflected, um, let's say, societal consciousness in knowing why we're doing what we're doing. I, uh, I, I, would, I, would, I would encourage that. Uh, because I think what I find exciting about architecture is not only is that it is um, 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 structuring social life. And I want to look at it like this. Next question. Hi, Patrick. Yeah. Um, in 2008, uh, you launched this concept of parametricism that uh, assumes all elements of architecture can be parametrically adjusted and thus be able to adapt to each other and to the environment, you know, creating an intensification of relationships, both internally within the building, which you have so well articulated, and as well as externally surrounding environments. That's, the, that's what the concept is about. But now, a decade later, I mean, we're coming to 2018, and in the advent of disruptive technologies, technologies that we could never predicted 10 years ago, such as Uber, which is redefining transportation as a service. And similarly, Airbnb, which is altering the social dynamics of communities. How do we now predict where this is taking us? And can the new parametricism fit within such context? Well, I think the Airbnb, I love it, by the way, <laughs> and Uber as well. Um, and uh, I think it gives a new way of, into, uh, way of traveling into cities, it makes it more affordable and also more, a more lovely experience, I think. Uh, it, it speaks to this new sense of mobility and dynamism within our society, which parametrism is anyway wants to gear itself to. And if we're talking about um, a building's adapting itself to conditions, but also if you talk about a new whole new district and multiple buildings, the default idea is to vary and diversify the product. Um, and that means to have cater for more unpredictable desires and, and, and demands and needs. If you have sp spread and diversify the product. So if you do 100 blocks or 50 blocks in a master plan, we do 50 different blocks of different heights and different depths, different sizes, instead of 100 equally sized. So that different organizations and different users can self-sort into these. Also, if these change, these users change, new users can again, a new suite of users can self-sort again into this diverse arrangement. And that's more efficient than having one generic solution. So this Flexibility and robustness um, you, you demand can also be delivered by parametricism. It doesn't require kind of generis, generic neutrality in the product. It is a variety of products. And I don't expect, and I still expect, that there will be um, change of use 
reusing buildings and Permetism, our compositions are inherently open-ended. You can always add or subtract. Zah used to call these open compositions. It's quite unlike you, you would have in, in a classical architecture where it's difficult to, to add and subtract. And we can add and subtract unusual and unexpected elements. But then we kind of weave them in. We not just collage them against. We're trying to weave them and connect and affiliate them in so that at each stage in this continuous transformation you get a sense of what relates to what, what belongs to what, and there's a sense of coherence. That's what we're aiming at. So I know this challenge of flexibility and tailoring. There's a tension there, but I think this tension is, um, uh, can be managed. Have you ever renovated one of your own buildings? Not yet, not yet. <laughs> Most of them are very fresh off the kind of uh, press yet, but um, we, would, we wouldn't mind, and we, we actually have some buildings which we conceived in phases, and uh, for instance, the Rome project, and now going back to add another phase, we would mostly do it in new and different ways. And I think the building and our way of working can... Um, can do that and sustain this. We actually were planning an, an, an adjacent building to this. And we tried to make connections, but not in a new language again. So uh, not <clears throat> as a new species setting itself into this ecology of species. That's the way I want to use the metaphor. Yeah, I'm very happy to alter and, 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 and improve and change uh, our buildings. Yeah. They're, not, they're not fixed. Don? Don? Thanks. Uh, there's a lot of talk about uh, disruptive economies now and disruptive social environments. Uh, and Zaha Hadid Architects has just gone through a big disruption with the death of Zaha. So my question is really about um, how the, the, the sort of office structure goes forward, where on the one hand you have a legacy of, of uh, a hand, Zaha's involvement, but you've also had for a number of years a kind of broad structure of groups and teams working through. But how do you go forward, even with, particularly with the research that you do, when you get to a point where you now say, well, let's do it this way, but is there this uh, sort of this tension of, but what would Zaha have done if she was here? So how do you go through with it, and do you replace Zaha, and it's now the Patrick Schumacher Zaha studio, or is it one of six different directions within the different directors that operate? Well, I think um, I maybe answer in a, on a middle kind of line because I think the firm was quite internally diverse in its repertoires and morphologies. If you compare it to other signature architects, let's say the work of Frank Gehry or Liebeskind, is much more unitary. If you, look, <clears throat> if you look at our work, we worked with edgy forms, with concrete, we worked with metal, we worked with glass, we were working with timber, <coughs> working with different materials, but also different morphologies. We have different themes, the skeleton, also the smooth surfaces, <coughs> etc., etc. We have, we have our own kind of, what we call, conceptual morphologies, 
with the way we're talking about blobs and surfaces and networks and, and aggregations and so on and carving. So there's a, there's a large diversity because <coughs> we are also uh, prone to reinvent ourselves, but also because there are multiple authors which come to the fore. We, we are quite uh, welcoming a lot of the creative designers to imprint their creativity onto the project under a set of principles. And that will continue. I don't think it will... But there, nevertheless, what held it all together, I think, was that there's a set of underlying methodologies and principles and values, which are the values of parametrism in the end. And, of course, you can also... And sometimes you can confuse a Zadid building with, with, with some other building of that movement, maybe with an FOA building or a Ben van Berg building, and that's okay. I mean, the recognizability is not something which we are so proud of. It shows, yes, we always somehow rep maybe recognizable because there are certain inherent limitations. So the signature recognizability signals, on the one hand, part of a movement, great, if it's, oh, another Zadid architect, not so great because that means you're limiting, and of course we're always naturally limit, limited by our imagination and our methodologies. So it is something we also would like to overcome. And Zaha was always somebody who was very keen to not repeat herself and not to be easily identified and to be kind of confused with her epigons, as it were, also, which she called Didi Hahas, or another Didi Hahas project. And she was making sure that our own work wasn't Didi Hahas, but it was meant to be something original. And I think this sensibility continues. So there's a kind of, uh, you can be both, uh, there's, a, there's a, a unity across differences. And there's a differentiation of a kind of project. That's the way I see it. And, every, and I'm very welcome coming and mentoring uh, uh, designers within the firm. It doesn't have to be my signature. And also we're open to collaborations with other firms and designers to allow their um, creativity to flow in. It's a very open project. For me, it's a very collective project. I'm more interested actually in the destiny and development of the field and the discipline and where this is moving than only what is Zadid Architects doing. I mean, we're doing well enough anyway. In terms of, thank God, we're, 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 we managed with this disruption to do very well, that we have a lot of work, we get new work, we can continue, we don't have to dismantle and, and disaggregate this fantastic team. So that's been primary. And I would love to grow it also a little bit because that gives dynamism. But in the end, it's, 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 it's not a trip for, you know, this is for me, is changing the, the face of the physiognomy of our cities, if we can, sounds grand ambition, but, but to, to make an impact on the built environment and evolve our field forward and the movement forward. That's what I care about. <clears throat> and um, so I don't care about and find, as I said, with this kind of Zahadid architects or Zahadid kind of signature um, element. It's somehow inevitable, but not something which we're pursuing. Okay. You have another question? <laughs> I, um, oh, I, I, I could ask you one more. Okay. Um, I um, actually probably there's something that the audience might be quite interested to hear is um, is what you're doing in Melbourne, and um, I think when when I was 
lucky enough to be at the Venice Biennale, the Architectural Biennale, last year in 2016, I was lucky enough to be able to go to the retrospective that was, um, that was put up for, for the work of the office and um, at the most fabulous palazzo on, near, near the bridge in Venice. And it was absolutely extraordinary the amount of work that was in that, um, in that retrospective. And it ranged from those paintings I was talking about um, from the peak competition from um, 1983 right through to um, some little maquettes of uh, some office buildings that I recognised as, being, as going to appear on our Melbourne skyline as well. So um, that's, that's obviously... I think it's your first trip to Melbourne today, this, this one. But, Shamefully. But, <laughs> but I've certainly... Um, met others from your office before and there's there is a couple of projects about to appear or about to we you know are on the drawing board and, and I heard you like them I do like <laughs> them <laughs> I'm so glad I mean, look we have we have an exhibition very close by I've just been walking over from it uh, over at the St Kilda project I'm not sure if you've seen it at the edge of the botanical garden you can see a huge poster on the building showing our facade now if you should go in there on the 18th floor. There's an exhibition which shows a lot of our other works around the world and a series of nice, delicious models, some videos, uh, me explaining projects as well as various furniture pieces. And you can go one level up and you find showrooms of the apartment. So, so I think I could recommend that. And that's... Uh, that's this project and the whole exhibition, which I think is up for a short while further. And the other thing is, of course, we're doing in Collins, in the major Zorba here, a beautiful um, um, building, which will ha have the, um, uh, the Mandarin Oriental Hotel and uh, some retail and so on. Uh, so very grateful for this opportunity. There's two, mm. I think, very beautiful projects. And, um, yeah. I've got one, have a look. one uh, more little question that we might close with. Um, and only because we were in email correspondence with each other and I learned that your office was celebrating Zaha's birthday very recently. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I wondered, what, I w That's wondered right. what your office did to celebrate that birthday. <laughs> uh, we had a beautiful um, Middle Eastern lunch with all the nice Zaha's, uh, favourite Zaha's dishes in, in our gallery. We have a gallery in London. So if you come to London, visit us. Um, yeah, we had a lunch in her honour. And, and, and toast, toasted her honour, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Michaela, can you tell them where the exhibition is? <laughs> and I think it's open. You can just step in, right? And what times? I think he is. He, he knows. He is. He is running this exhibition. It's a beautiful show. And again, the the, the apartment can be looked at, right? By everybody, is that true? I hope that's correct. Perhaps you could touch base after. Okay. Okay. Um, we might close there. Yeah, it's getting chilly, isn't it? It is. Isn't that funny? The the yeah. sun's shot across and it's shadowy. Thank you, Patrick, so much for the conversation. Thank you. <laughs>